Welcome to this special Christmas edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The story of the human race points to Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, the prophet writes, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In our sermon today, titled, O Come Let Us Adore Him, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones brings out the marvelous character of the season. How are we to respond to the Christmas season? Do we marvel at it? Are we amazed by it? This baby who was born in a manger was, in some sense, like every other baby, because he was born fully human. But he was unlike every other baby, in that he is from everlasting. Let us listen now as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones connects the promises of God from the Old Testament to their fulfillment in the baby in the manger. Everyone at the MLJ Trust wishes you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And now, may we open our Bibles and may God open our hearts as we listen to the doctor. The words to which I should like to direct your attention for a short while this morning are to be found in the book of the prophet Micah, in the fifth chapter and the second verse. The second verse in chapter five of the book of the prophet Micah. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the tribes, the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We are met together this morning to consider what is, after all, and beyond any dispute, the focal point, the very center of the whole of human history. We date our calendars from this event. This is A.D. 1958. This is the center, the focus of the whole story of the human race. Now this is something which is made abundantly plain and clear for us in the Bible itself. Everything in the Bible points to Bethlehem, to the coming of the Son of God into this world. The whole of the Old Testament is looking forward to it. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God came to men immediately after he had sinned and had fallen and in his shame and gave him the great promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. And there immediately... Adam and Eve were caused to look forward to Bethlehem. And as you go through the history, the record of the Old Testament, you find that every intimation given by God is in some shape or form pointing, directing, looking forward to this which happened there 
in that little place called Bethlehem. The whole of the Old Testament, I say, looks forward to it, points to it. And then when you come to the New Testament, the whole of it, of course, is devoted to it. Everything in the New Testament is pointing us to that. It all centers on this particular person. And in varying ways, in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, in the Epistles, and even in the book of Revelation itself, everything seems to focus attention on this babe that was born there in Bethlehem on that momentous morning. It is the central theme of the whole of the scriptures. It is, as I say, the turning point of all history, the focus of the story and the history of the human race. Well, now, it matters not, therefore, in a sense, where you may open your Bible, you will find somehow or another, somewhere or another, this reference. As I say, you get it in the Old Testament as much as in the New. And wherever you find it, whether it be old or new, you will find always that every reference, however oblique, to this momentous event brings out its marvelous character. It's amazing character, the extraordinary thing which happened there on that occasion. My argument is that uh, you see all this in the New Testament, of course, explicitly, plainly, and clearly. In the Old Testament, it's always there implicitly. And what is always emphasized is this miraculous, marvelous, surprising, and unexpected character of it all. Well, now we are looking at just one illustration of this in this second verse of this fifth chapter of the book of the prophet Micah this morning. This is his way of describing it. He was given the vision, the revelation. He was given this insight. And he puts it on paper. He points forward to it. And what he says we shall find is as clear and as definite and has this marvelous element in it quite as much as the plainer and the more obvious statements which we find in the New Testament. Very well then, let us approach it by asking a question. What was it exactly that took place at Bethlehem? What's the meaning of this? What are we doing here this morning? Why are we thus assembled together to look into these matters? Here is a familiar term, a familiar name, Bethlehem. But, but what is it? What exactly was taking place there? Now, never was it more important that we should ask that question. We all must realize how difficult it is to view these things as they should be viewed. The world in its sin takes hold, even of an occasion like this, to use it for its own ends and purposes. But that is to pervert it. It is only as we look at this in the light of the teaching of the scripture that we really can know what it means. And here is a wonderful synopsis. What was happening at Bethlehem? Well, the first thing that was happening was this. God was in Bethlehem, fulfilling his promises. Now that, you see, is obvious, isn't it? Because here uh, we are looking at a prophecy. Here is a man who was writing seven to eight hundred years before that babe was born in Bethlehem. But you see, a way back at that point, God had given the promise. 
Indeed, as I've already been reminding you, God had given the promise long before this. What was happening, in other words, at Bethlehem was this, that all God's gracious and wonderful promises were being fulfilled. The Old Testament is a book of promises, starting, as I say, in Genesis 3.15, about the seed of the woman. You can trace them on, you can follow them on. You will see that even after the flood in the family of Noah, God said, well now, I'm particularly going to use the descendants of Shem. Shem was the one who was chosen, and God gives a promise in connection with his progeny. And then you follow on the history, and you will find that he particularizes even in the family of Shem, and chooses a man called Abram, and turns him into Abraham, and tells him that in thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now all these are parts of the promises. We haven't time to go through them all this evening. But as you read the history, you will see God repeating the promise, making it more particular, bringing it down to Jacob, not Esau, but Jacob, then selecting one of the twelve sons of Jacob, Judah. It's to be out of the tribe of Judah. And then in the tribe of Judah, selecting particularly a family, the family of David. And on and on the promises go. And so you find these promises back in the book of Genesis, in all the historical portions, in the Psalms you'll find them, you'll find them in the prophets, you'll find them everywhere. These promises of God, of what he was going to do about men and about his salvation, and they're varied in form and in character, promising an abundance of blessings to those who believe on him. All these promises, I say, are to be found in the Old Testament. What was happening at Bethlehem? Well, God was fulfilling, carrying out, keeping all the promises. The Apostle Paul has put this for us once and forever. In his second epistle to the Corinthians in the first chapter, he says, In him all the promises of God are yea, and in him amen. Every one of them. Go through your Old Testament. Scrutinize it. Examine it carefully. Pick out every promise. The smallest of them. Pick out every one of them. Make a list of them. And here is what we are told. All the promises of God in him are yea. And in him, amen. Everything that God has ever promised the human race is in Christ. In him God has treasured all his treasures of grace and of wisdom. Everything is in this one person and in him alone. So it's very important that as we look at Bethlehem and as we consider the babe that was born in Bethlehem, we should realize this great and momentous fact that everything that God has ever promised the human being is to be found in Christ. He made the world through him. Every blessing comes through him. He is the channel of everything that God has for us, everything that God is ready to give to us. But of course we've got to emphasize this in addition, that what happened at Bethlehem is not only the fulfillment of all the promises, it is in particular the fulfillment of this particular promise. That is the extraordinary thing about the Old Testament. 
that it has this wealth and abundance of detailed information. You see, the Old Testament not only tells us that the Messiah is to come and that he's to come of the tribe of Judah and of the lineage and house of David, it even tells us where he's going to be born. And that is why those who neglect the Old Testament, as they think in order to praise the New Testament, are displaying their ignorance even of the New. The two Testaments go together. They're given by the same God. They're about the same person. And here is a detail. God had promised that when the Messiah came, he should be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrata. And when that babe was born there, God was fulfilling his ancient, precise, detailed, exact promise. Well now, as we look at that, we must go on therefore to a second principle, which is this. That in the birth of the babe of Bethlehem, therefore, God was revealing and vindicating his character. I wonder how often we think of that. Let us never forget this, that in our preoccupation with the son, with the babe and his great salvation, let us never forget that it was God the Father who sent him. It was God the Father who was doing this thing there. And in doing it, I say, he was manifesting, revealing, and at the same time, vindicating his character. And there is nothing that is so comforting to the believer as to realize this truth. What was he vindicating? Well, he was vindicating his veracity. He was vindicating truth. One of the essential attributes and characteristics of God is veracity and truth. The Apostle Paul, in a very daring phrase, puts that like this. He says, God who cannot lie. God who cannot lie. God is eternal and everlasting truth, the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And God in the birth of the babe is vindicating his veracity and his truth. You see, he had made these promises so many centuries before, and the centuries had passed, and unbelieving, sinful, scoffing men had said, what of the promises? God said he'd send a deliverer. But the years are passing. The centuries are going. But where is the deliverer? And they began to say that God had gone back on his word. That God was not truth as he had claimed to be. The answer to it all is what happened in Bethlehem. God vindicates his word. His promise. His veracity. His truth. So you and I can learn this lesson this morning. That he is ever faithful. Ever sure. God has never broken a promise and never will. His promises are ever sure. He is ever faithful. And then we see something else about his character. We notice here God's complete independence of circumstances. And if that isn't the most cheerful thing you'll hear this Christmas day, well then I'm very ignorant. I know of nothing that so comforts me and cheers me as I look out upon the world today in its sin and its shame, its muddle and its confusion. And as I see the machinations of men and all their schemes, I know of nothing that is so comforting as to realize this, that God is completely and entirely independent of circumstances. Entirely independent of what men may do. 
or attempt to do. Where do I find that? Well, I find it here. Listen. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means this. At this particular point and juncture in history, Bethlehem Judah, Bethlehem Ephrata, had become a most insignificant little place. Evil times had come upon it, owing to sin and owing to unfaithfulness. Though Bethlehem was, after all, the city of David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, it had fallen upon evil days. It was one of the smallest of the hundreds and the thousands of Judah. You remember all these tribes were divided up into thousands and into hundreds, even as in this country, counties were divided up into hundreds. So it was in Israel. And this great possession of Judah, the tribe of Judah, had thus been divided up into thousands and into hundreds. And Judah should have been one of the greatest and the most magnificent of them all, but it wasn't. It had become one of the very least, one of the most insignificant. And yet, you see, in spite of that, it makes no difference at all to God's plan and to God's purpose. It doesn't matter what men may do. When God says that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah shall be born in Bethlehem. It doesn't matter whether it's high or low, whether it's experienced prosperity or adversity, it doesn't matter at all. And that is our comfort, I say today, that though men may make a shambles and a hell of this world, God is completely independent of it all. He's above and beyond it all. And though men may do his very worst, it will have no effect upon the purposes and the plan of God. In Bethlehem, one of the lowest, but the very least, of all the thousands of Judah, the Messiah was born. Yes, and I want to emphasize another thing. That that in turn indicates this. That God is not only independent of our circumstances and all we do and all we produce. God has complete and absolute power over all and complete control over all. Where do we find that? Well, we find that in this most interesting way. Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. And but for one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ would have been born in Nazareth. But we know that he wasn't born in Nazareth, he was born in Bethlehem. Well, how did it come to pass that he was born in Bethlehem? Well, you were given the explanation in that second chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Caesar Augustus, the great emperor of Rome, and Rome, you remember, had recently conquered Palestine. Caesar Augustus, for no reason whatsoever, but to satisfy his own whim, as he thought and as everybody else thought, decided that he'd have a census. And he decided furthermore that all these Jews should go up to the particular house and lineage to which they belonged and to the city which was the center of their interest and of their home. And thus it was, you see, that by the decree and the order of Caesar Augustus, Joseph and Mary had to go up to Bethlehem. They had no choice at all in the matter. They would have been punished severely, perhaps by death, if they hadn't gone. Their emperor of Rome compelled them to go. 
Even Mary in her condition, she had to go by the decree of Caesar Augustus. Yes, and not only were they compelled to go from Nazareth up to Bethlehem, they were compelled to go at a particular time and on a given specific date, which had been laid down by Caesar Augustus. Well, I needn't keep you and I don't want to insult your intelligence. You see what was happening, don't you? What made Caesar Augustus do this? There's only one answer to the question. It was the Lord God Almighty who put it into his mind and into his heart, who governed every detail of the edict, who saw to it that Mary should be in Bethlehem at this precise time when the Son of God was to be born of her womb. That is to me one of the most glorious aspects of this message of Bethlehem and of Christmas Day. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, the conqueror of the then known world, is in the hands of God. And God is able to control his innermost thoughts, his secrets, his innermost desires, his most secret aspirations. Everything is in the hands of God. He's not only independent of it, he controls it all. Emperors, dictators, empires, everything that you may like to mention, it is all under the almighty hand of God. So that here, in this unexpected and yet very wonderful way, God was revealing his absolute and eternal power. I don't understand a depressed Christian. I don't understand the sort of Christian who's worried about the future of the Christian church and the future of God's cause and God's name. Oh, I know that sin and evil are rampant over the face of the earth, but they were at this time. Rome was pagan, and the emperors were claiming for themselves the powers of deity and calling upon men to worship them. But a Caesar Augustus, is but a putty in the hands of God. And it was God who planned that the census should be taken and that it should happen in this way and at that particular moment. God is vindicating his character, revealing his truthfulness, his independence of men and the world, his almighty and illimitable power. Those are some of the messages which we find at Bethlehem, but here's another. God there at Bethlehem was putting into operation and bringing into operation his great plan and scheme for the redemption of the world. Now, did you notice a very significant little statement in my text? Let me read it to you again. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, unto me, that is to be a ruler in Israel. I do trust we've got the significance of those two words. Unto me, it is God speaking. And what God is saying there is this, that he who shall come forth there in Bethlehem, Judah, is one who is coming forth unto him, unto God, unto me. Which simply means this, that the one who comes forth there in Bethlehem, Judah, 
is the one who is going to fulfill and to carry out and to put into operation God's great plan and scheme and purpose for men and his salvation. And to me, for my purpose, in my interest, to further the plan which I have put into operation. And that, of course, is the very heart and center of the Christian message. Salvation, in one sense, was but a promise until this happened. But here it is coming into actual practice. It's always good for us to think of these things in terms, in the terms that the old divines, the old Puritan divines, the old Protestant divines and others used to do. They were very fond of thinking of and describing the eternal counsel between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. They delighted in picturing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit meet in conference, in council. What for? Oh, they have seen, they know that man is going to fall. What can be done about this fallen humanity? And there they have their great conference. And God the Father propounds his plan and his scheme. And the Son volunteers to come on earth to put it into practice, to carry it out. And the Holy Spirit volunteers to apply it after the Son has achieved it. Very well, that's the thing we're looking at in these two words, unto me. The Son came on earth in order to put the plan and the scheme into operation. It was a part of the plan that he should become a man, should take unto him human nature should share the life of men and women, yes, above and beyond it all, should take their sins upon him and bear them to the cross and receive the punishment that we so richly deserve. That's the plan. And here at Bethlehem, Judah, he comes forth unto God, to God's ends, to God's purpose, in order that the plan and the scheme might actively be put into operation. But I say that above even all that we've been considering, the thing that we must carry away in our minds is this. The one who came in order that these things might be done, the one that was born there in Bethlehem, who is indeed the fulfiller of God's promises, the vindicator of God's character, the executive of God's eternal purposes before the foundation of the world. Let us look at him. That's what's happening there. Yes, but it all happens in this babe. Well, let's have a look at this babe. Let us join with these shepherds and say, let us go even unto Bethlehem and see these things. Let's go and have a look. Who is this? Who is this babe? Did you notice the extraordinary description given of him? Let me call attention to it. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth. Who shall be the ruler of Israel? Here is someone coming forth. Here is someone who is being born. Here is a beginning. Here is an appearance. 
Here is someone coming forth out of the womb and beginning to breathe and to live. And they put the swaddling clothes upon him and they lay him in a manger. He's come forth. He's beginning. He's born. Well, what have we here? Well, here is a man. Here is a babe. Here is a true portion of humanity. Here is a human being. Here is someone born as everybody else is born. A babe. He's come forth. But you see, our text doesn't allow us to stop there. Have you ever heard anything like this before? Out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Evidently, it is a man who is to be the ruler. It is a man who is to be the savior. Wait a minute. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Here is the contrast. It is the contrast between coming forth and whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Wait a minute. Don't assume that this is but a natural child, but a, a babe like every other babe. He is a babe. He's come forth. He's been born. Ah, oh, yes, but this isn't his beginning. This isn't his origin. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And the expert expositors are all agreed about this verse. That Micah here has used the strongest expressions that the Hebrew language was capable of to describe the eternity, the everlastingness of this babe that came forth in Bethlehem. And here is the mystery, the marvel, the paradox of it all. He is a man, but he's God. He was born, but he didn't begin. He came out of eternity into time. He is begotten, not created. He is the eternal Son of God. He is light of light eternal. He is the one of whom John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From eternity he had been going forth out of the Father, coming eternally out of the Father, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Lay hold on these two phrases, meditate, ponder upon them. His coming forth, his goings forth. What was happening at Bethlehem was that the only begotten Son of the Father the everlasting Son came into the world and began his existence, his appearance in the likeness of sinful flesh in the form of a man. And that brings me to my last point, which is this. That is his person, the God-man, the eternal Son made flesh, the Word made flesh. The other thing we are told about him is that he has come to be a ruler in Israel. And that just means this, that he is the one to whom God has given the kingdom, the kingdom of God. He has come into the world to carry out that purpose, as I said, and that is the purpose, to gather unto God a people for himself, to create amidst the kingdoms of the world the kingdom of God. And he's come to do that. 
And God has given him all authority and power. He's to be the ruler in Israel. How does he do this? How does he set up this kingdom? Well, he does it, you see, by first of all, defeating all the enemies of men. Sin, Satan, death, hell, every one of them, he defeats them all. He does it also by saving his people out of this present evil world. One by one, he takes hold upon us and he saves us, takes us out of the kingdoms of the world, puts us into his own kingdom, who, as Paul puts it, hath translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Then what does he do? Well, he keeps us. He sanctifies us. He teaches us. He guards us. He guides us. He prepares us for the coming, finally, of the kingdom into this world. He's the ruler. He is the one who controls the whole of human history. History, even today, is in the hands of this Son of God who was born in Bethlehem. Do you remember how we are told in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation? There in heaven there was this scroll with seals upon it. The scroll of history. And the question was, who can unroll it? Who can unfold it? And there was no one in heaven or in earth who was strong enough to do so. Until suddenly the lion of the tribe of Judah suddenly appeared. This selfsame Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is the Lord of history. Indeed, he is the Lord of the universe. He's the ruler. And when the time has come, he will return and judge the world and destroy his enemies and finally set up his kingdom. There will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And Christ will reign as king and all who belong to him shall be his people and his citizens. Now, that was what was happening at Bethlehem. Have you seen it? Have you realized it? Well, I can test you as I close. Have we realized the significance of that? Do we realize who that babe is? Do we realize why he's come, what he's been doing, and what he's yet going to do? The way we test whether we have realized it or not is simply this. What's our reaction to it? We remember the reaction of the shepherds, don't we? We are told that after they'd seen it all, they went back to their sheep, glorifying and praising God. You remember what the wise men did when they came from the east and when they saw him? They bowed before him. They worshipped him. And they offered him gifts of frankincense and myrrh. That's the reaction. Men and women who realize who he is and why he's come, who see in him the Son of God and the Savior of the world and their own personal saviors, are men and women who look at one another and who say, having looked at him, they look at one another and they say, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Have you done so? He asks for your worship. 
He asks you to bow the knee unto him. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the ruler in Israel. He's God's eternal son. He's come to die to save you. What does he ask of you? He simply asks you to give him your heart. He asks you to bow down before him, to worship him, to praise him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Come, let us do so. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.